welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on this. Father, the thing we need more than anything right now is what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that we would have the strength to comprehend the depth of your love for us. Lord, that's what we need to see. That's what changes everything. That's what changes everything when we're in the midst of deep darkness and trials, when we're in the midst of doubts, when we're in the midst of temptation. And even when we think things are going really well and we kind of want to credit ourselves for it, what we need to see is your profound love for us. And so we pray in this text, where we hear that Jesus is a greater priest, make it real to our hearts, Lord. We don't just need something intellectual to happen here. We need to feel and know and comprehend and be warmed and stirred and made alive by a fresh vision of your love. And so we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would do that for the glory of your son, Jesus, and for the joy of your people. And all God's people said, Amen. So every month that has five Sundays, we do what we call family service, and that's what we're doing right now. And so we have all the kids that are uh, five years old and up in with us for service. And one of the reasons to do that is uh, so our children's ministry workers only volunteer once a month. And thank you guys for doing that, by the way. Those of you guys who, who serve in children's ministry, we appreciate you a ton. Because as you can see, a huge part of our church are kids but the other reason is it gives us an opportunity to all be together like this. And, uh, and by the way, kids, you're welcome in here all the time, just so you know. So I'm actually going to try to sell you on being here instead of children's ministry this morning. And so, you know, if you ask your parents, we could hang out more. But so let me ask you this. If you're somewhere between 5 and 11 and you would typically be uh, in children's ministry, can you raise your hand real high? Come wave it about. <laughs> I saw that. Kids, can you wave your hand, wave it about? Yeah, let's give them a hand. Let's give a hand to these kids. And kids, the reason why we applaud you is because you guys are a huge blessing to our church. And I don't know if we communicate that enough, but um, you children are a huge blessing to our church. Psalm 127 says that children are a gift from God the way extra arrows are a gift to a soldier, to a warrior. It's better for a warrior to have lots of arrows than just have one or none. And uh, children, you guys are a gift like arrows to a warrior. And we have the blessing as parents and then as a church, we covenant together to train you up in the ways of the Lord so that one day what happens is you get launched. You get launched like an arrow out into the world to accomplish the purposes God has for you out there. And it's just such a blessing to us to be able to be a part of it. It's an honor to be both your parents, for those of your parents of these kids, and for us as a church to have so many kids here. So we're thankful you're here. So kids, we've been in Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews for a few months now. We're studying Hebrews. Hebrews is about how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anyone or anything in the world. That's what that book's about. And this passage is about how Jesus is a better priest than the priests in the Old Testament. So I have a question for you kids, and I'm not going to ask it quite yet. I'm going to ask in a sec. I need to explain the question. The question is, where did all the Old Testament priests go? You know, as you read the Old Testament, you see there's tons and tons of priests that they had. And yet, where are they now? And today we have pastors, people like me, but I'm not a priest. 
Priests did a different thing. Priests would go in a special part of the temple to offer a sacrifice only they could offer for sins. Priests went into that inner place and offered prayers in the presence of God that regular people couldn't. That's what a priest did. Pastors don't do that. Pastors lead, pastors teach, we pray, but we don't have any special access to God that you don't have, okay? So kids, let me ask you this question. Where have all the Old Testament priests gone? Where are they? What happened to them? Why are they gone? Why don't we do it anymore? Kids, any kid can answer. They're dead. (laughs) Which is true. And this passage talks about that. It talks about how they didn't live on and they died. Okay, that's a great answer. They're dead. Why didn't we get new ones, maybe, is the question. Why haven't we continued to get new ones? Because we could have gotten new ones. Okay, we can't replace them. Why not? What do you guys think? Can't replace them. Don't know. I'm not, I'm not just pressuring you. But that's a good question. There's, there's not a point in replacing them. I mean, God doesn't want us to, right? He doesn't want us to replace them. What happened to the priests? Why are they all unemployed? There was mass unemployment. Why? Kids? Okay, they were sinners like us. Yeah. What else? Did somebody replace them? Nope, nobody replaced them. You're like, hey, this is your job. You tell us. <laughs> All right. It's because of Jesus, right? The reason why there aren't any more Old Testament priests is, you know, we can't replace them like you said. They died like you said. They're sinners like you said. And they were replaced. They were replaced by Jesus. We don't have any more because Jesus is the better priest, and he replaced them all. In this passage, Hebrews 7, is about how Jesus is a better priest. He's better in the way he works, we're going to see. He's better in the way he was promised, and he's better in the way he continues. First, Jesus is better in the way he works. Jesus is a better priest because his priesthood actually does work. Not just how it works, but it does work. The priests didn't work. What they were given to do didn't work. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable for the Levitical priests, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be to have another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek? Point there is they didn't make people perfect. The priests weren't able to make people perfect. Those Old Testament priests couldn't take a sinner and make them perfect, which is what God requires, by the way. God requires perfect moral obedience. He requires perfection. They couldn't do that. Verse 18 is even more brutal about the track record of the law and the priests. Look at verse 18. It says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and uselessness, for the law could make nothing perfect. How's that for a performance review? You know, your boss brings you in and you know, you're kind of looking forward to hearing what he has to say, maybe hoping you get a raise. And he says, you know, you're, you're kind of weak and useless, okay? That was the verdict here about what the law and the priests were able to do in making people perfect. They were weak and they were useless. So all those priests got fired. Not only could the priests not make us perfect and, and save, the law couldn't. Look at the beginning of verse 19 again. It says that even the law couldn't save. It says, for the law made nothing perfect. The law can't save you. You know, when you see God's law, you think, okay, well, I'll keep that, and if I keep that, and if I keep it enough or well enough or better than my neighbor, then maybe God will accept me. It doesn't work that way. The law is 100% or nothing, and we can't keep the law, so the law can't make us perfect. Now, Jesus is a better priest because his priesthood actually works. Look at verse 19. 
For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope, Jesus, is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus did what the priest and the law could never do. He made us perfect in God's sight. And your life itself right now, as we observe it, I can guarantee you, is not perfect. But we are perfect before God. God sees us as perfect. Romans 8 talks this way. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, weakened by our inability, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus is able to make sinners perfect. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're trusting in him, you are perfect before God. He sees you as perfect. He did that by his death, taking away your sin. He did that by his perfect life that's credited to you. So that right now, if you're trusting in Christ, very imperfect you is seen by God as perfect already the moment you believed. It's like the way we wear clothes. We wear clothes so that people don't see our nakedness. Everybody's very thankful for that. We wear Jesus' righteousness as clothes so that God sees Jesus' righteousness, not our underlying nakedness, not our lack of righteousness. We wear Jesus's righteousness. Does that make sense, kids? That when you trusted in Christ, what happened was Jesus's righteousness came onto you, his perfect life, as if you're wearing him. So that God deals with you as if you had done all, like the catechism question said, as if you had done his perfect life and never sinned at all. Isn't that amazing? This is totally different, guys, than all the religions out there. All the religions out there give you the law and say, hey, do your best, and if you do better than most people, we'll see at the end. Do you guys want to just, we'll see at the end? No. Okay, I don't know if you guys are like gamblers, but that sounds terrible, right? It sounds terrible, like do your best with the law, and we'll just see at the end. We'll see if you spend eternity in heaven or hell. We'll just see. With the gospel, we hear the verdict of judgment day now, and it's 100% righteous in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The judgment day of the future is brought into the present. We're perfect in Christ. The law was weak to do this. And I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea on this when we, when we see this passage and he talks about how there's a change in the priesthood from the Old Testament priest to Jesus, and there's a change in the covenant from the Mosaic covenant to the New Covenant. I, want, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that somehow um, God's working through trial and error or something. As you read the Old Testament, you might think like, okay, you know, God was like, hey, let's try, let's try a garden thing. We'll do a tree. Don't eat from the tree and all that. And then he comes back and he's like, look at them. They're sinning. He's like, this didn't work at all. So he's like, okay, he's like, we're going to do something different. Uh, let's do a patriarch thing. We'll have these patriarchs. Everybody kind of follow them. They'll be the fathers of the faith. And then he comes back and he goes, ooh, this didn't work well. Right? And so he's like, okay. We probably just need more rules and structure. So let's, these guys really need it. So we're going to make a nation. We're going to give them laws. We're going to give them priests and kings. We're going to have a super organized. And then suddenly with all this structure and all these rules, then it's going to go great. And he comes back and he goes, okay, I think this is worse than the other two options, right? That's not what God's doing. It's not trial and error. God is not like meeting people's inability and trying something new. No. God, from the very beginning, has an unfolding story. And in that story, there's all kinds of foreshadowing and promises. And the, even the failures of his people are working into the story to bring us to a place where Christ would arrive. And he'd be like the perfect resolution to the story. Amen? That's what he's doing. And the unfolding of all his covenants and in all of the different things he's doing through these people. is he's, he's showing his plan through a story. 
And what's great is when Jesus finally comes, not only do we see him as like, oh, he's the one we always needed, but we also have all these categories to understand his ministry, right? Like priest. We would have no real way of understanding Jesus as our priest unless we had had all these priests before to see what they did. And so that's what he's doing in the Old Testament. The Old Testament priests and the Old Testament law, uh, the fact that they didn't save, that they were useless to make people perfect, was not a design flaw. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to point forward to Christ in the gospel. That's what the law does. That's what the law is for. Sometimes we look at God's law and we think that, you know, we need to somehow take this law and just prove our own righteousness. Guys, the law is meant to be like a mirror. Like a mirror that shows you your need for the shower. The law shows you your sins that you know you need Christ. So the law is a beautiful thing for what it's for. It's great if you use it as a mirror. If you start using it to kind of clean yourself, that's weird, right? You start rubbing up against the mirror, hoping things will get better. That's not the way it works. The mirror is to show us our sin so that we know we need Christ. And I'll tell you guys, the law works perfectly for what it's intended to do, right? It was not weak and useless for what it was intended to do. It was intended to point us to Christ and to show us that we need not our own labors, but that we would be covered in Christ's righteousness. And so... Jesus is a better priest because his priesthood actually worked. Secondly, Jesus is a better priest because of the way he was promised. Another way we know that that this wasn't trial and error and that God had always planned for Christ to come is the psalm that he quotes here. In two spots, in verse 17 and in verse uh, 21, he quotes Psalm 110. The thing with Psalm 110 is Psalm 110 was written a thousand years before Jesus came. So a thousand years before Jesus came, Psalm 110 tells us that he would be both a king and a priest. Um, let, me, let me read a little bit of it for you. It says this, The Lord saw, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. This psalm, Psalm 110, is promising that there was a king to come. And it's not David, because David's the one writing it. And he calls this king that's going to come his lord. So someday this king, who's David's lord, will come, and he'll also be a priest. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 says this, And the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this, this priest that is promised that's going to be a king, and he's promised well before, a thousand years before Jesus comes. The writer of Hebrews in verse 20 says, For those former priests were made such without an oath, but this one, Jesus, the greater priest, with an oath, by the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And so Jesus being this both priest and king. And did you guys catch in that passage, it also said that he'll be a priest forever. It's interesting, right? This, this prophecy can't, doesn't make a whole lot of sense without Jesus, does it? That there's a king that's coming who's also David's Lord, who's also a priest, and oh, by the way, he'll be a priest forever. Like, who could fill this? You know, only Jesus can fill this, right? The Old Testament priests were qualified for their, for their job based on their genealogy. It's because they're from Levi. It's like, hey, you're from Levi? Okay, you can be a priest. It's just that easy, unfortunately. It was, uh, the qualifications were, you know, basically nepotism. 
You know, you want to be a priest? You mean Levite? Okay, cool, you're good. It's like, he's a scoundrel. That's okay. He's a Levite. So let's, let's put him in here. You know, it was based on your genealogy. And what's interesting is this passage is wrestling with the idea that Jesus actually would be unqualified to be an Old Testament priest. Doesn't that sound strange to you? Because you had to be from the line of Levi. He actually wouldn't be able to get the job. So he shows up. He's like, hey, I'd like to be a priest. They're like, who are you from? I'm from the line of Judah. They're like, nah, can't do it, right? But what the passage is saying is that Jesus actually is qualified for a much more exclusive job posting. He's qualified for a much more exclusive priesthood that was listed in Psalm 110. The qualifications for that job are more strict. It's not just like, are you a Levite? It's, have you been resurrected? Take a look at verse 16. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's what qualifies Jesus to be this priest that was prophesied a thousand years before. He's, he's qualified not because of his family tree, but because of his resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Think of it this way. So Jesus is talking to an Old Testament priest, and he's like, hey, so how'd you get your job? Old Testament priest is like, well, you know, my dad did it, and my grandpa did it, and his grandpa did it. So that's kind of a shoe-in, you know? Didn't really need to go to school or anything, because I was like, yeah, I'm just going to be a priest, you know? It's like, a, it's, I'm a shoe-in, right? And then he turns to Jesus, and he's like, so how'd you become a priest? He's like, I was raised from the dead. It's a weird way to stop the conversation up. He was raised from the dead. That's what qualified him to be this priest that was prophesied a thousand years before. Had to be somebody that continue on forever, and that's Jesus. Which leads to the third way he's a better priest, is that he continues. One of you guys gave the answer to why we don't have Old Testament priests, is that they're dead. Okay, that's this part. Jesus continues forever, and that makes Jesus a priesthood of one because you only need one because you never need to replace him. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus, as our priest, continues forever. And so you ask, okay, what's he doing? What's he doing? What's he doing right now? We know what he already did. He came, lived a perfect life, died for us on the cross. That sacrifice makes us right with God. He, he, he resurrected, he ascended, he's reigning. But what's he doing as a priest for us right now? What does Jesus continue to do? Because it says he's continuing to be our priest. He's doing something. What's he doing? How is he showing his love for us right now? Look at verse 25. Verse 25 is so amazing. Listen to this. This is what Jesus is doing right now. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what's Jesus doing right now for you? Interceding. What's interceding? Yeah, what is it? Asking on our behalf. What's another word for that? You guys are so shy. The kids aren't, because they're like, they're dead. You know, but you guys are like, I don't know. What's interceding? It's praying, right? It's asking on our behalf. It's praying. Jesus right now prays for you. 
If you're a Christian this morning, he right now prays for you. That's what the text says. He always lives to make intercession for you. Remember those Old Testament priests, they did two things. They offered a sacrifice for sin, and they went into the Holy of Holies, and they prayed for the people. Jesus, having done the final sacrifice for sin, is now constantly praying to the Father for you. The right hand of the Father, constantly praying for you. If Jesus is your priest this morning, you can be confident he always prays for you. Passage says he lives for it. It says he, he always lives to make intercession for you. Guys, how encouraging is that? Like, how much courage does that deserve? So, okay, here's the deal. I brought out the big guns, okay? Jesus prays for you. And I'm just wondering, how much courage, I'm not saying how much courage is it given you, how much does it deserve? A ton, right? I mean, Jesus prays for you. I mean, we have people in our lives that'll say, hey, you know, I pray for you every day. And what's your response when somebody says, you know, I pray for you every day? What do you say? You're like, whoa, that is super encouraging. That explains a lot. That explains why I haven't gone like full on heathen. Like you're actually, your prayers are being used by God to hold me together. That explains why I haven't just completely just crumbled and disintegrated, that my faith hasn't completely evaporated, right? It's amazing when someone says that. You think like, oh, how do you even remember? How do you have time for that? How do you care that much? And what this passage is saying is that Jesus is saying to you this morning through this text, I pray for you every day. And you're like, whoa, right? It's like, you got so much going on. (laughs) You pray for me. He prays for us, guys. This is very personal. I think that's one of the benefits of this passage is it shows us how personal the gospel is. Because sometimes we can think kind of mechanistically and impersonally about the gospel. It's like the gospel is this offer. It's an offer to everyone. I took it. Now I'm getting the benefits. You know, I signed up. I got it. I'm getting the benefits. It's like very mechanistic, very impersonal. Guys, there's nothing impersonal about this. He prays for you. Actually, there's nothing impersonal about the gospel. As the gospel says that God the Father chose you to be his kid before he made the world, Ephesians 1.4. You realize that? That's very personal. He thought of you, he chose you by name before he made the world. The Father did, that's Ephesians 1.4. The gospel also says that Jesus gave himself on the cross very particularly for you. He thought of you, just like a husband loves and offers himself to his wife, Ephesians 5.25. Isn't that amazing? He thought of you. Jesus was not on the cross suffering, going like, man, I hope this helps somebody someday out there somewhere. He thought of you in particular. And as he thought of you in particular and paid the debt for your sin, he counted the nails and the thorns to be worth it as he thought about you. Isn't that amazing? It's personal, guys. It's so personal. And then at some point in your life, the Spirit got involved, right? And he came, and he opened your heart to believe the message of the gospel. The Father chose you in eternity past before he made the world. He sends the Son to die for your sins. And then at some point, he looks at the Holy Spirit, the Father does, and he says, get him. And he went, and he opened your heart to believe the gospel. Just like in Acts 16, when it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe. Wasn't the Spirit like sprinkled a bunch of believing dust across the whole crowd, right? The Spirit came in and opened the heart of Lydia to believe. And he did that for you if you're a Christian. And he might be doing it for you right now. You might be like, this 
all of a sudden, all seems really real to me. It is, by the way. It's totally real. You can have Jesus. You just take him today. You just trust in him. And then all this stuff I just told you, all this stuff is true of you. God is very personal in, in coming to us and in saving us and in sending Christ for us. And now Jesus is very, very personally loving you by praying for you every day. Look at verse 25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the utmost, love that word, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This morning, guys, you have to hear, because it's 100% true if you're a Christian, Jesus is saying to you this morning, I pray for you every day. I pray for you every day. Guys, I'll ask you again, how much courage does that deserve? That truth? A ton. A lot. Way more than we have, you know? And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I just say that to say, let's meditate on this and just see the Spirit give us more and more of that. I think he's doing it right now. Listen to what Robert Murray McChain said about Jesus praying for us. He said this. He lived in the 1800s. He only lived to be like 30. He died of tuberculosis. Amazing guy. Robert Murray McChain. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Right? Wouldn't that be amazing? If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, you'd be like, hey, you know what? Everything's going to be fine, I think. <laughs> you know, Jesus gets what he prays, prays for. You know, this is going to be, I think this is going to be just fine. I think all these things I'm worried about will be just fine. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But then he says this, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And do you guys see the causal connection in verse 25? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And then the word since, he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' intercession for you is the reason you're still with him. Jesus' intercession for you is the reason you're still with him. Jesus' prayers are the reason your faith doesn't fail. Jesus' prayers for you are the reason you keep believing, the reason you keep returning. Because, guys, there's a lot of corrosive forces on your faith. I don't know if you guys even realize this. So John says it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The enemies of your faith, you've got this belief in Christ, and you have three big enemies. You have the world, the flesh, and the devil. You have the devil speaking lies to you every single day about how God doesn't love you, how he doesn't really accept you, how you, your sin has finally just disqualified you from, from his love. Satan's doing that every single day. He's dropping lies in your mind every single day. And then you got the flesh, a co-conspirator <laughs> in your own body, kind of like, oh, okay, you know, grabbing onto those lies, wanting to believe those lies, wanting to tempt you with all sorts of despair and temptation. And then we've got the world around us nodding along. Yeah, yeah, you want to believe that. That's what we're doing too. Isn't that crazy? How does your faith survive? It's an incredibly corrosive environment, right, for your faith. How do you keep trusting him? And the answer is Jesus prays for you. That's the reason why with all of your pain and all of your doubt and all of your trials, you're still with him. It's because Jesus prays for you. What does he pray? You guys remember what Jesus said to Peter about this? You guys remember the passage where Jesus, you're like, man, there's a lot of quizzing. <laughs> it is. It's open book. Um, you guys remember that passage where, uh, where Jesus was talking to Peter about praying for him? You guys remember? 
It's in Luke 22. Check this out. So Jesus said this to Peter. Simon, Simon. That's what he says when he's in trouble, I think. (laughs) Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter's like, no, I'm fine. (laughs) He says, Lord, I'm ready to go to both prison and death for you. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you've denied me three times that you even know me. Let me ask you this. So Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat. Jesus says, I pray for you that your faith will not fail. Did Peter's faith fail? Did his faith fail? We know he failed. That's pretty obvious. It's epic. Everybody knows it. Even non-Christians, everybody knows about this. He failed. He fell. He failed. But did his faith fail? And how would we know? Well, Jesus included how we'd know. He said, and when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Guys, his faith didn't fail. Right? He did return. Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter failed, but his faith didn't fail. His faith didn't fail in the end because Jesus prayed for him, and he returned. If you've fallen into all kinds of sin, and you've failed in great ways, and you return again, your faith didn't fail. That's not what Satan wants, by the way. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. You know what that is? You know, when you sift wheat, you take out some of the impurities, you take out some of the the parts that you don't want. The thing that Satan wants to do when he sifts you like wheat, he wants to sift your faith out, right? He wants what's left in the bottom of the sifter to not include any faith. And he didn't succeed with Peter, and he didn't succeed because Jesus prayed for him. And guys, it's the same for you. Jesus prays for you that your faith will not fail. And the enemy does want to sift you like wheat. Anybody been sifted? Anybody feel like they've been through the sifter? He wants to sift you like wheat, but Jesus prays for you. And though you're sometimes going to fail and your, your faith won't fail, and you're going to return to him because Jesus prays for you. And when you return, you, you tell that story of grace and you strengthen your brothers. Peter did that, right? Read the book of First Peter and you hear all about grace and the gospel and forgiveness. You know, that's Peter returning again and strengthening his brothers. And you guys all have stories like this too, right? Where you failed, but your faith didn't fail. You returned to him, and now you can strengthen your brothers with this story of grace. Look at verse 25 again. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Have you drawn near to God through Jesus? This passage says he's able to save you to the uttermost. That'd be a fun word to think about. Google Docs corrects it. It's like it's not uttermost. It's it's not uh, uttermost, it's utmost, according to Google Docs. But it's uttermost. He's able to save you to the uttermost. Jesus is not half a savior. He's not like, hey, I'm going to bring you this far, and then let's, you get out there and prove yourself and do the rest. You know? Look at what I've done for you now. You get out there, champ, and press us. He saves to the uttermost. He saves all the way because he prays for us. Guys, this is so encouraging. In the book of Hebrews that is so filled with warnings, what he's giving us right here is what our real hope is. It's not in us holding on. 
It's that Jesus prays for you. He always lives to make intercession for you. Luther famously said this, When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can be lost. I'm going to say it again for the people in the back. (laughs) When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can be lost. Guys, our security is in him. He intercedes for us every day. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to keep hearing. Help us to keep knowing that truth, that even now at this very moment, your son Jesus is at your right hand interceding for us. Jesus, our righteousness. Jesus, the reason why we don't have to fear the judgment because we're in him. And Jesus, the one who even now holds us up with his prayers. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for loving us from from before you made the world. We thank you for sending your son Jesus for us, that you would offer your own son for us as unfathomable love. Jesus, we thank you that when you went to the cross, you did it for us in a very personal way, and you endured our very personal sins against you. It makes us, it boggles our minds that we would even sin against you, against that kind of love, and yet you continue to forgive. We thank you, Jesus, for doing that. And we thank you, Spirit, for at some point in our lives opening our hearts to believe this great truth. Lord, we thank you for even today as we open this passage and we felt the love of God for us. Spirit, we thank you for doing that. That was you. How was you loving us again? And thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.